thank you for downloading this very special episode of Pardes Live in Miniseries, featuring former Israeli ambassador to the United Kingdom, Daniel Taub. This podcast has been sponsored in loving memory of Shlomo Rutlinger Zichrono Livracha, upon the marking of his first Yortzeit by his family who miss him dearly. For more digital content, or to download more podcasts, please visit elmod.pardes.org. To say that when I've traveled around the world and met leaders of Jewish communities, I have been surprised, even amazed, how many professional and lay leaders of Jewish communities around the world have particularly memories of their time in Pardes, which was a deep, a seminal, and extraordinarily important station on their Jewish journey. So that's another reason. It's a real pleasure to be here this evening. And it's a pleasure to be invited to speak about Jews in foreign courts. It's an excuse to take out of the mothballs a jacket that I don't get too much opportunity to wear in Israel. Um, and, um, And to talk a little bit about some of the stories in the Bible that really speak to me very deeply. If I were to ask you to think of a character in the Bible who comes from a lowly background, finds themselves in a foreign court, who by luck or talent or both, works their way up to an extremely high position of influence, and then plays a significant role, both in the history of that country and of the Jewish people, who do you think I would be thinking about? Joseph. Joseph. Anyone else? Esther. Uh, Who said Daniel? Excellent. People don't know the story of Daniel so well because it has this annoying habit of turning into Aramaic just when it starts getting interesting, but uh, very much the story of Daniel as well. Anybody else that comes to mind? Moshe, to some degree. I would say, you know, in and out of this person, but there is this in a foreign country. uh, uh, That's interesting. And Mordechai and Esther, I think you're absolutely right. We have a story there that has two protagonists on very similar paths. And here we have a number of accounts in the Tanakh that share some really remarkable similarities, so much so that literary critics of the Bible sometimes call them the diaspora Jewish novels. These are the parts of the Bible that are diaspora Jewish novels, and they have structural similarities, they have narrative similarities, they, have, um, they, they, they use similar language. They all have this kind of Aladdin feel to them with feasts and dreams and intrigues and so on and so forth. And for our purposes, I think what's particularly interesting about them is they all have some very remarkable similar lessons about the qualities that are needed for Jewish leadership in the diaspora. So with your permission, I'd like to look at some of those stories this evening and at Alex, Rabbi Alex's invitation also to think about whether there's anything from my own personal experience that can cast a little light, a sort of practical midrash on some of these stories. So I think the first thing that is, is unusual in terms of these particular stories is that they don't actually begin with the character themselves. The classic biblical story will tell you who someone's parents were, who they were born to, and then what happened. But all of these stories actually start not with the character, but with the context. They tell us about what was happening in that country. And I should say that there's probably a lesson here for Israeli diplomats. When you go abroad, you are ready with your talking points about Israel as startup nation, Israel flying off to save people from earthquakes, the justifications for our actions against terrorism, and so on and so forth. And you land in a foreign country, and the first culture shock is that actually people aren't always interested in cherry tomatoes and drip irrigation. (laughs) They have their own story. And as a diplomat, your goal is to understand what their story is and to think about how you fit into it. So in all of these accounts, we're told what is the story of the country in which the hero is going to find themselves. And and these stories are very similar. 
And the stories are really about a large country, an empire, that is in a state of instability, possibly fragmentation. We have a king, a ruler who is usually in the second or third year of his rule, and he's trying to consolidate his empire. We start in source number one, Vayehibi Meachashverosh, Huachashverosh, Hamolech Mihodu Vadkus, Sheva Vesrim Umayam Dina. We're talking about Achashverosh, who rules this massive empire, 127 provinces. Now, you're normally taught that to show how powerful this guy is. But when you think about it, 127 separate states, as we know, each one of them with their own language, where he constantly has to send out people on horses every time he makes a ruling and so on, that takes some tough consolidation. We start the story with Daniel. It's the next source down. Also with Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, who's expanding his empire. He's just, he's just taken over Jerusalem. He's desperate to find a way of controlling it, which is why he tells people to gather together youngsters, steal youngsters away to make his new diplomatic, diplomatic corps. And, um, and one of the ways in which these rulers try to assert their authority is, strangely enough, by having feasts. In a sense, it's the ancient world's way of showing power. You bring all of these people to your court, and you dazzle with them, as it says here at the end of the first source, Baharoto et Osher Kvod Malchutov et Yakart we're going to show him quite how splendid, how magnificent is the, um, is the treasury of this, of this, of this empire. Um, now, I know that people think that diplomats spend all of their time dressing up in fancy clothes and going to cocktail parties, and there is a certain amount of truth to that. <laughs> but I think one of the things that comes as a surprise when you're actually engaged in, uh, in diplomacy, is how hard it is to actually be effective at a cocktail party. The fact is you walk into a room, you have representatives of the diplomatic corps from all different countries, you have representatives from all the government offices, you have the press, you have the foreign service and so on, and your goal is to think, what information am I, tr what information am I trying to give? How am I trying to coordinate all of this information? It's, it's an information exchange. You know, a little like shul, I hear you say. Um, but it's... it's and, and when you come back, then you can be up till late in the night writing cables to make sure that this information gets to the people who need it, to make sure there's an exchange and so on. So that's from the point of view of the participants. From the point of view of the ruler, it's not so much as information exchange as a dazzling, even intimidating display of, of soft power. And we see it here, if you look at the end of that first source, we see, I didn't bring the entire description of this lavish hall with its draperies and so on and so forth, but if you are in shul next week and you hear the being read, you will hear the little bit that's in bold there, v'yashkot and the zahav v'chelim mikelim shonim, you'll hear the reader of the Megillah slightly changes the tune. And he leaves the Megillah tune and he gives you an echo of the tune of Eicha. He gives you the echo in order to give you a hint of the Midrash that tells you that these were not ordinary different vessels, but these were actually the vessels that had been taken away from the Beta Mikdash from the temple. And that's how he was showing that, you know, these vessels were made for God and we are gods because we are drinking from them. Now, it's, it's always fascinating to ask, when there's a midrash like that, where does it come from? And sometimes you'll see a hint in the text, a word that's a little bit different that is a clue. But actually, I think we can tell with fairly great certainty where this particular midrash comes from. And this midrash is actually borrowed from a different story, which is the story of Daniel. Because if you look at the next paragraph, you'll see that Nebuchadnezzar's son, Shazar, he also makes a feast. And in this, you'll see in the second line, he commands them to bring There it says explicitly that 
that he told his servants to bring those gold and silver vessels that had been stolen away from the temple in Jerusalem. So here we have two rulers, both of whom are trying to establish their credentials. Both of them are using the fact that they actually have in their storehouse the, the vessels from the temple. Um, do people still try and demonstrate soft power through receptions in this way? I think the answer is actually that they do. But like a lot of things related to power, if you really have it, if you're really authentic, then you don't need to use it. You know, if you go to a reception in Buckingham Palace, they don't need to try too hard to impress you because it's just there. All you need is one of the waiters to come up to you and say, would you like some cider, sir? It's made from apples from Her Majesty's estate in Sandringham. And the message comes across quite loud and clear. On the other hand, it's the people who are more up and coming. It's the people who are a little bit more insecure that actually need to make more of an effort. And it was when I thought about another party that was made. And again, even in the story of Joseph, although we also a feast that's made, and that's the feast that's made, it's the third source here, the feast that is made by Paro on his birthday. And that, of course, is the, the feast where, where the, the baker get their, each of them gets their just dessert. And that reminded me of a different kind of party that I was exposed to in London. Uh, London is a sort of center for very, very successful business tycoons in the former Soviet Union. Um, what some people would call oligarchs. And in that community, it turns out that birthdays are a very big thing. And the birthdays that we were invited to were probably the closest thing to an echo of some of these feasts we're reading about. Taking the most lavish hall and then decorating it to be more lavish, bringing in the most famous opera singers and circus acts, having statues of the birthday boy that are several, you know, several stories high and so on and so forth. And all of this basically to send a message that, that we, are, we are authentic, we have power, we're on our way up and so on and so forth. And I should say that most countries are not entirely free from this sort of habit as well. Almost every country has a national day and they choose to celebrate it with, according to their budget, a fairly lavish celebration. So for us, the, the largest celebration of the year was the Yom, Yom HaTzma'ut commemoration party. And, you know, it was the, the biggest party according to our budget. It was, it was thousands of people. And it was, um, it was amazing to me to see how effective it was. You know, the, the poor secretaries in the embassy would be dealing with the phones ringing off the hook. I want an invitation. How do I get invited? You know, unfortunately, we weren't allowed to charge for tickets because that way we really could have done very well indeed. Um, but but it, it's for a purpose. And the purpose is, is, first of all, for people who are out on the front line defending Israel, some of them in tough environments all year long, that they should have an event that they should come to and feel a sense of, of pride and celebration and joy. And for other people, people from government, people from government ministries, come along and see that this is a, a country that is, is exciting, is vibrant, and so on and so forth. I have to say, when I think about that event, it's one of the few things I think about, and I feel the physical pain, because I don't know how politicians do it, but shaking more than a thousand hands in a single day. And, and the first year that we were there standing in the welcoming line, there was one guy who I don't know who he was, but he came down the line and he came to me and he gave my hand such a scrunch. And, and I still had a way to go. And it was the funniest thing because the following year, when I still didn't know who he was, I was sitting talking to somebody and out of the corner of my eye, <laughs> I can see this guy who is starting to make his way down the receiving line. And I have this sort of panic inside me. And the next thing I know is he's standing right in front of me. But fortunately, I had a moment of inspiration. He's standing in front of me. So I open my hands wide and give him this big hug. <laughs> <laughs> he had no idea what hit him. But I actually managed to survive the day and carry on. Um, so um, 
So these figures, in a way, are an attempt to, to create a sense of stability, to use soft power to try and consolidate uh, a, a, a fragile empire. But that's not the only problem that the rulers of these empires have. Um, and one of the things that's really striking is that none of them can sleep well. All of them wake up at night. And actually, um, if you turn over the page and you have a look at number four, an uneasy ruler, you will see all of them wake up in the middle of the night. This is Achashverosh waiting up in the night. We'll come back to him. Then we have Nebuchadnezzar. And it says in the second year of his reign, Chalam Nebuchadnezzar Chalomot, he dreamt dreams, Vatipahem Rucho, and his heart, his spirit was thumping. And if you have a look at the next source at the top of the next page, this is Paro, and again, almost exactly the same language. Again, it's two years later. Pharaoh is dreaming. In the morning, his thought is thumping too. And actually, they have a lot to worry about. If we go back to, um, to, to Ahasuerus, he wakes up in the night, he calls for his book to be read to him. And what is it they read to him? Probably his greatest fear that his close guards, his close security protection, Bigtan and Teresh, tried to kill him. And the higher you go, it's a common theme, I think, in the Torah, that the higher you go, the more insecure you become. You see it, for example, in the life of Shaul. As he grows up, he becomes more and more secure, even paranoid. But here, Achashverosh is not paranoid. He actually has people who are out to get him. And, and that's why power and royalty are so closely associated with personal security. And this is something else that, although we don't talk about it very much, I had a small opportunity to experience, because in the United Kingdom there are two countries that their ambassadors are awarded close protection, security protection, uh, by Scotland Yard. Um, and those, of course, are the two nefarious regimes of the United States and the State of Israel. And that meant that, that I was protected by the same team that was protecting the prime minister and senior ministers. They were extraordinarily professional, lovely, thoughtful officers, senior officers from Scotland Yard with a very dry sense of humor. I remember very shortly after I arrived, I stepped out into the road. And coming from Israel, I looked the wrong way because I hadn't realized. And the, the guard who was closest to me, he just said, Please don't do that, sir. It's an awful lot of paperwork. <laughs> um, and, and I took the security very seriously because, tragically, Israel has lost diplomats, including in the United Kingdom. But for all of that, there was something funny about um, you know, these people not just being with you when you bought socks in Marks and Spencers, but coming to shore with you, or I would be coming home from the embassy on Friday afternoon, and Zahava would call and say, can you pick up some chalas? And you would hear going, you know, detour to Moishe's bakery, detour to Moishe's bakery. And it just didn't quite make sense to you. Um, anyway, so, um, so the context, the context of the story, the broader context, is a context of insecurity at the national level, insecurity at the personal level. And we think about that broader story, it actually has a sort of conclusion. And with a bit of a spoiler alert, maybe just turn to the final set of sources on the last page, and you'll see political stability number eight. Um, and, um, and sometimes if you're in, in short, hearing the Megillah reading and you've heard people who are booing all the way through every time that Haman's name is mentioned, there'll be one boo that they save for this first verse that you can see on number eight, uh, that King Achashverosh imposes a tax. And that's what people are booing. And the next one is, the next source is Joseph also who succeeds in collecting all the money in Egypt, basically into Pharaoh's storehouse. But if you stop to think about it, you can figure out why this is being mentioned. 
of the story because it's really an answer to the concern that the ruler had at the beginning. If you can impose a tax on all parts of your empire, including the mainland and the islands, as it says here, it means that you have established control. You have established a federal fiscal regime, and that's really the, the goal. So the broader context of this story is a move from fragmentation and instability to centralized control. And that is the context in which our Jewish hero enters. And thinking about the Jewish protagonists that we mentioned, I think we can find that here too there are some really quite striking similarities between them. And the first one is that they are, all of them, immigrants. First or second generation immigrants. And you can see that here, in, we're back on the first page, source number two. There is another verse here, which is, um, which is sung by the reader of the Megillah to a hint of the tune of Eicha. Um, because that is a description of the exile from Jerusalem. That's when Mordechai was exiled. We read the same thing. We read also in the next source that Daniel was, he wasn't so much exiled, he was kidnapped. He was part of this cohort of talented young diplomatic cadets that Nebuchadnezzar sent his people out to try and gather and bring back to Bavel in order to set up a, a regime that control, could control his empire. Um, and Yosef, of course, we know, is also taken down to Egypt. So the first thing is that they're all of them immigrants. But that's not all. They're all of them orphans. We know that Esther, Einla, Avvaem, she has no mother and she has no father. We know that Daniel was taken away from his parents. And we know that Yosef, his mother, passed away and he was taken away from his father. So we have these characters who are both immigrants and unprotected orphans. And there's one more thing that we're told about all of them, which is perhaps the most unusual of all. We're told that all of them were good-looking. Almost all of them in exactly the same language. And again, if you're looking in number two, we can see that Esther was yafat toav, a tovat mare, shapely of form and nice to look at. Daniel was also tov ma'are. Yosef was also yafat toav, mare. And why do I say it's so unusual? So unusual because as a general rule, the Tanakh is not really interested in what people look like. Not only the Tanakh, but in fact the whole of the Talmud. We have hundreds and hundreds of rabbis and in relation to almost everyone, we have a sense of their intellectual temperament. We have a sense of their philosophical outlook. But only in relation to very few do we actually know what they physically look like. And I think it's very true what somebody once said. He says, for the Greeks, for the ancient Greeks, what was beautiful was true. But for the Jews, what was true was beautiful. That's where the center of gravity is. So it's unusual in a Jewish text to have a description of somebody being physically attractive. And when we do have it, it's almost always because it's important to the story. Because we won't fully understand the story without it. And I think that's the case in relation to these three stories. Because in every one of these cases, this immigrant orphan child is going to be adopted by somebody in the host culture. And if you turn over the page to sources number three, what you'll see is that surprisingly, in each of the three cases, the official in the host culture who adopts them is described as a saris. A saris can mean an official, but its literal meaning is that it's a eunuch. It's somebody who can't have children. Esther, we know she was taken, she was looked after by Chagai, Sris HaMelech, Daniel was looked after by Sarah Srisim, Yosef was sold to Sris Paro. And if you think about it and take it in the simple meaning, what we have here is an immigrant orphan with no parents being adopted by a host official with no children. And they create, if you like, a sort of cross-cultural umbilical cord 
that helps them integrate into the broader society. Um, and that's a really unusual dynamic. And what that does is that that places them in a fortunate position for them to begin their rise. And in every case, their rise takes the form of some kind of competition. In the case of Esther, it's a beauty competition. She, um, she's looked after, she wears less makeup than anybody else in the competition, but she still comes out on top. For Yosef, it's a dream interpreting comp competition when none of Pharaoh's magicians and sorcerers can interpret and he gives the interpretation that speaks to Pharaoh. And in Daniel's case, it's actually both. The story of Daniel is unusual because there's not one ruler, but there's a series of different rulers, from Nebuchadnezzar to Belshazzar to Daryovish to Darius and so on and so forth. And in the later parts of the story, a theme that occurs again and again is that there are dreams and only Daniel can interpret them. But the story that speaks to me first is actually the first story, just after Daniel is brought back from Yerushalayim to Bavel. And I think this story will particularly to speak to anybody who, like me, grew up as a Jewish kid going to a non-Jewish school and bringing packed lunches with him. Because the story is, and we'll take a moment to read it because I think it's a wonderful story. He says, so Daniel has been brought back to go through this special deluxe cadet program that has been prepared by Nebuchadnezzar. And that includes a special diet, a special regimen to get the most out of these kids. And it says Daniel decided he didn't want to defile himself with the food that was being provided by the king. So he asked the chief eunuch that he shouldn't have to eat them. And Daniel was very popular with this official. And he says to him, I'm extremely frightened that if you don't eat the food which has been designated down to the exact quantities by the king, what's going to happen is that you are going to end up looking pasty, looking unhealthy. You're not going to be as good looking as everybody else. And you're going to be in trouble. And worse than that, I'm going to be in trouble too. I'll lose my head. So Daniel says to him, why don't you try us? It's Daniel and his three friends. Try us for 10 days. Give us minha zeroim. Give us the vegan diet. Give us the beans. We will live off beans and water. And after 10 days, see how we look. And he says, and he listened to them. And he tried them for 10 days. And at the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better than any of the other kids in the program. Now, first of all, that's an extraordinary advert for vegetarianism, I have to say. You heard it here first on from the pages of the Bible. But also, it's um, for anybody who has grown up Jewish in a non-Jewish environment, it's something that resonates very, very deeply. So I have to say, keeping kosher as a diplomat is a little bit of a challenge. I, um, I have mastered the art of cutting through 17 layers of plastic discreetly. <laughs> Uh, while everybody else is having a meal around you. Uh, the problem with, with matching food, which people sometimes do, the caterers will find out what the meal is and then provide you a, a matched meal. Uh, the problem is they may make a meal that looks exactly the same, but they will forget that, um, that they should not be providing you grandmother-sized quantities because <laughs> everybody else is looking, why does this guy get three times as much as I've got on my plate, and so on. Um, I, say, I think my favorite story about keeping kosher in the, in the UK is actually, I tried while I was in the UK to reach out to the Haredi community, which is an unusual for an Israeli diplomat to do, and we, we tentatively made some, made some connections and so on. But there has never been, to the best of my knowledge, a photograph of the Israeli ambassador in the Haredi newspaper in the United Kingdom. And there still hasn't. But what there has been, has been a photograph of a harmless kosher catering van parked outside the Houses of Parliament with the caption proudly saying, a kosher meal being delivered for the Israeli ambassador at the Houses of Parliament. So I think that took me at least one more step towards acceptance in the Haredi community. Um, 
So, so being adopted by an official in the host culture sets the stage for, for our protagonists to rise, but not just to rise, to assimilate. And one of the things that we see them doing in the course of these different stories is they become less and less distinguishable from the society around them. They all of them change their names. Esther, of course, wasn't born Esther. She was born Hadassah. Hadassah. Uh, Daniel changes his name to Belshazzar. Um, Yosef is given the name Tsofnat Paneach. So all of them become, you know, names of the host culture. All of them change the way that they dress. And actually, clothing plays an extraordinarily important role in all of these stories. Um, and, and we understand from the story that they actually become indistinguishable from, from the surrounding culture. And you know, one of the reasons why clothing is so important, anybody who, who watch, has watched the TV series The Crown will hear every third episode Prince Philip basically complaining that they're basically just a show that wears funny costumes that otherwise nobody would realize that they were royalty. That's the way in, people, in which people know that they're royalty. And in a sense, the outward appearance is, is, quite, is quite important in creating that effect. So before I presented my credentials to Her Majesty, I was invited to St. James's Palace uh, for an audience with the Queen's equerry, who was going to talk me through the procedure. They actually have a woman there who plays the part of the Queen, so you can actually act it out and learn the choreography. And they asked, they said to me, is there anything in particular that you want to say to Her Majesty? So I said, well, actually, I would like to make the blessing, the traditional Jewish blessing, on seeing a reigning monarch. So there's a little pause, and then the equerry says, well, how long is this blessing? <laughs> <laughs> so, so I told them, I said, it's probably about four or five seconds long. They said, oh, that's fine then. You know, he says, the high commissioner of Tongo usually goes down on one knee and claps. And so I realized I'd been firmly placed in the lunatic category. Um, <laughs> But um, um, but then he said to me, and I suppose you'll want to know what you're supposed to wear. I said, yes, please. He said, well, you'll be pleased to hear that fairly recently, Her Majesty has decided that she'd like to make the audiences less formal. She'd like to have a more informal atmosphere. And, uh, and that is the reason he said, that you won't be wearing white tie and tails, but you'll be wearing a morning suit. And I almost burst out laughing. Because somebody who comes from Israel, the different, I mean, for people who, who aren't au fait as I wasn't, white tie and tails is what Fred Astaire wears when he's dancing with Ginger Rogers. And a morning suit is what they're all wearing at Ascot in My Fair Lady, basically, if that gives you a sense. Both of them are tailcoats and an awful lot of rigmarole and so on and so forth. So it was really sort of funny to me that this is, this is informal wear. Um, so just actually, before I went to England, I was reading everything I could lay my hands on um, about British-Israel relations and so on. And I came across a book that was written in the 1960s by Israel's cultural attaché at the time in London. His name was Hanoch Bautov. And uh, his book was called An Israeli at the Court of King James. And on the front of it, it has this wonderful picture of a guy who is in white tie and tails, but wearing sandals. <laughs> and there you can see him from the front, and if you turn the book around, you can see him from the back. So when I, was, when I was leaving London, and it's customary to have a leaving party, I actually took this picture and put it on the invitation, and I put dress code white tie and sandals. And I thought that would be a, a cute joke. But people, not everybody has a sense of humor. <laughs> and, and it wasn't the people that turned out that I thought was funny. It was the people who had their secretaries phone up my secretary to say, I'm terribly sorry, but the ambassador is going to be coming from a different event. Is it OK if he comes wearing shoes? So they really took it very, very, very seriously indeed. Um, Anyway, so, um, so we have the importance of clothes. Actually, it occurs to me, I have a very, very favorite story about the British and about clothes. And it's getting harder and harder for me to tell it because 
because generations are changing a little bit, but it occurs to me that this may be a group of people that would enjoy it. Um, so um, the story is about somebody, a Jewish person who came to England from Europe just after the war. And he very, very successfully assimilated into British society. And um, he joined all the right clubs, he changed his name, and very soon nobody knew that he was Jewish at all. But then one day he got a cable, a telegram, from his father in Eastern Europe that he was coming over to visit. And the son was in an absolute panic. If his father came, his father who still wore the strimal, who still wore the capota, who still had a beard and pears, the game would be up. So on the date that the boat arrived, he drove down to the dock, he bundled his father quickly into the back of the car, and he drove him straight to Savile Row. And in Savile Row, he took off the old man's capota, he took off the old man's strimal, and he dressed him in a three-piece tweed suit. And then he looked at him, and he saw that he still had his beard, he still had his pears, so he took him to a barber. And the barber shaved off his beard and just left a little handlebar moustache so he would look like the English gent. But he looked at his father in the mirror and there was still something that wasn't quite right because his father still had the two payoffs. So the son picked up the barber's scissors and he cut off the first payoff and he cut off the second payoff and two tears rolled down the old man's cheeks. And the son looked at the father and he says, but Tata, you look like a proper English gentleman. Why are you crying? And the father looked at him and he said, I'm crying because we lost India. <laughs> so, as, as our protagonists as our protagonists rise and become assimilated, we also see that jealousies begin to arise. And these jealousies from the other courtiers come from the fact that this is some immigrant upstart, you know, who is probably taking over their glory, maybe taking over their powers and responsibilities. But more than that, it could also be the fact that in most of these cases, they have taken up the position of number two. And number two is a very difficult position to be in because you have to do the dirty work for number one. If by the end of the story the ruler managed to consolidate his power, managed to impose taxes, we can guess it was probably number two, whether it was Joseph, whether it was Mordechai, that was actually doing that dirty work. So we find there's quite a lot of unpopularity. Um, but how... How are these peeved rivals going to get their own back on somebody who is now the ruler's favorite and is actually working very hard for him? And so they have to find an Achilles heel. And the Achilles heel in these stories is their Jewish identity. Is the fact that like Mordechai, they won't bow down to Haman is the fact that, I mean, it's interesting, even in, although it's a slightly different structure, even in the story of, of Yosef, when Potiphar's wife takes umbrage at Yosef, we find that that's the first time she calls him a Hebrew. She says to the other people in the household, look how this Hebrew slave is laughing at us. And in Daniel, again, we have a series of stories. We can see them here. Um, we're now in... In section 6, we can see, every, with Mordechai, we see everybody is bowing low. And with Daniel, we have a number of stories like this. The first one, he also wouldn't bow. He wouldn't bow when they built an enormous statue of Nufachat Netzah, and that's why he and his friends are thrown into a fiery furnace. But the second, second version of this story is even more revealing, because we find the rivals explicitly saying that we can't find anything wrong with Daniel. The only thing that we can find wrong with him is the way that he performs his faith, is his religion, the way that he deals with his God. And so they lay a plot for him. 
and they make the king pass a law that anybody who makes a request that is not to the king will be thrown into a den of lions. And when Daniel continues to pray three times a day, they point to him, and that's why he's arrested and he's thrown into the lion's den. And in these stories, what we see is it doesn't remain something personal. It actually becomes a, 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 a battle, not just against a single Jewish individual, but against the Jewish people themselves. And in fact, you see that with Homon back at the page before, at the bottom of the page under number six. Haman starts telling the king, it's not enough to get rid of Mordechai. There is this people scattered and dispersed whose laws are different from those of any other people and they don't obey your laws. What is it that he's actually saying? He's basically saying these are people that have dual loyalties. These are people who are not loyal to, to, to you here. And what we hear from these stories is an echo of the strains of anti-Semitism that are going to carry on echoing down through history. And, and what's remarkable, even chilling, is the very first instance it is before that is actually just after the story of Yosef. If you go back to the following page, um, what you'll see is Paro, about a third of the way down the page. And just think about what Paro says and how many themes that have echoed through history are, are presaged even at this early stage. Paro says to his people, Behold the people of the children of Israel. This, remarkably, is the first time that the Jewish people has been called a people. And the person that calls them a people, in a sense, our initial peoplehood, was created by anti-Semitism. They are greater than us, they are mightier than us. Somebody once says there are two groups of people that think Jews are, are richer and cleverer than everybody else, and that's anti-Semites and Jews. That's one of the things that we have in common. Well, certainly, uh, Paro, Paro seems to fit into that category, and he says we need to deal with them carefully in case it will happen that they will be a war for Nosaf, you can't trust them. When it comes to the crux, they're not going to be with us. They're going to be on the other side. And that, sadly, is something that is still with us. Shortly before I was appointed to go to London, my counterpart was appointed the British ambassador to Israel. His name was Matthew Gould, and he was the first Jewish person to be appointed ambassador to Israel. And I was shocked that in Parliament there were questions raised about whether somebody Jewish could perform the role of being a British diplomat faithfully. And, you know, I always, I would say to Matthew, particularly when we disagree things, that I'm prepared to stand up publicly and let people know that you are not helping us in any way whatsoever. <laughs> I have your back. I'll be defending you to the hilt. Um, and... Um, and it's not just, by the way, it's not just non-Jews that have this concern. One of the things that's so interesting, if you look at the history, I, I became very interested in the history of Jews in England, and particularly their relationships with Israel and so on, and you see that this fear of being accused of having dual loyalties is a tremendously recurrent and profound theme for them. So here, for example, at the start of the Zionist movement, in 1909, 25 leading Jewish families in the United Kingdom took out a page in the Jewish Chronicle and published a statement against the idea of establishing Zionist societies, effectively Israel societies, in colleges and universities in England. They said, we regard it as dangerous that the rising generation of educated Jews should be encouraged in opinions which must tend to alienate them from other Englishmen and are likely to arouse suspicions in all classes of society as to the measure of patriotism amongst English Jews. Uh, and shortly after that, we had, we had the debates around the Balfour Declaration, where the Jewish community was deeply, deeply split between those who were supporting it and those who were against it. 
who felt it was going to persuade people that they were not fully British. And, and incredibly, that debate actually took place between the two Jews who were actually in the British War Cabinet, Herbert Samuel, who later became the High Commissioner here in Palestine, and a distant cousin of his, Edwin Montague, who was viciously opposed to the idea of Zionism and the established state. He couldn't imagine that Jews could ever set up agricultural communities. He says, it's ridiculous. He said, um, I cannot see any Jews I know tending olive trees or herding sheep. <laughs> and even, even after he had left the cabinet and he heard they were discussing the Balfour Declaration, he wrote an urgent letter to Lloyd George, the Prime Minister, and he said, that declaration, the Balfour Declaration that you're thinking of passing, would mean that the country for which I have worked, the country for which my family have fought, tells me that my national home is Palestine. There's a tremendous irony here because as British as Edwin Montague thought he was, we actually have the evidence of a non-Jewish British diplomat who was writing about him, Aubrey Herbert, and he described him as follows. He said, it is ridiculous to pretend he's an Englishman. He's every inch an Oriental. So with all of his attempts to be more British than the British, it turns out that you can only go so far. But this is the campaign that is waged against the Jewish protagonist, where his Achilles heel, his or her Achilles heel, is their Jewish identity. And the protagonist needs to make a decision. And their decision is, are they in or are they out? And they have the option of opting out. They can choose to leave the Jewish story. So are they going to step up to the plate or are they going to step away from the plate? Now, the Bible doesn't usually give us inner monologues. That's not part of the traditional biblical narrative. So usually we will know that, for example, Daniel saw that there was an edict, he's not supposed to pray, but he still carries on praying. But what's so interesting about Megillat Esther is that we have two protagonists, and they have a dialogue between them. And in a sense, that reflects what would be the inner dialogue for somebody that is grappling with this debate about whether they should be in or they should be out. So Mordechai hears that there is an edict to destroy the Jewish people, and he begs Esther to go into the king. And Esther responds, I haven't been called for 30 days. You know that if I'm called, Unless the king changes his mind, it's going to be a sentence of death. And then Mordechai sends a message back to her. And I think the message that he sends her is really quite remarkable. And it's here under number seven. He says to her, He says, send back to Esther. Don't think that you, unlike the rest of the Jews, are going to escape by entering the palace. If you hold your peace at this time, relief and salvation will come to the Jews from another place, the closest thing that we have a reference to divine providence in the entire Megillah. But you and your father's house will perish. I think if you were Mordechai and you were trying to persuade Esther to take on this task, the natural argument that you would make would be nobody else can do it. Our future is in your hand. But Mordechai surprisingly doesn't say this at all. He says this is not about the Jewish people. The Jewish people are in somebody else's hand. This is about you. Are you going to be part of the Jewish story, or are you not? And that is the argument that makes Esther step up to the plate. Um, I'd like to try and bring some of the themes in all these stories together. And it strikes me that there are, are maybe two key messages that these stories seem to be telling us. The first one, I think, is that it is legitimate for Jewish people in diaspora communities to strive for high office, to rise to high office, and to make significant contributions to the countries in which they live. You know, you'll often hear, he's gone too high, it's not comfortable for us, 
Sanders against Bloomberg, too many Jews on the ticket, I don't feel comfortable about it, and so on and so forth. But these stories seem to say there is a legitimacy, and that's a legitimacy that in a sense echoes down through, through Jewish history. We have Rambam, who was the doctor to the sultan in Egypt. We have Abal Benel, who was the treasurer to, uh, to the king of Portugal, afterwards advisor to the king of Spain. We have, if we were talking about the Balfour Declaration, we have Chaim Weizmann, who, because of his chemical inventions, became a, an advisor to, to, to Lloyd George and so on and so forth. So I think there is a, a legitimacy to, to striving for high office. But I think the other message of all of these stories is that however high you rise, that situation is going to be fragile. The type of security that the Jewish people can enjoy in these communities, even if they have the best of all possible relations with the ruler, is going to be fragile. The fact is when, when Esther finally persuades the king that uh, the, the Ahasuerus uh, to act against Haman's edict, his hands are tied. The law has been passed. The most that he can do is allow the Jews to defend themselves. The fact is, uh, Yosef, we know, as close as he was, Vayokam Melech Hadosh, a new king arises, and according to some interpretations, scary interpretations, not even a new king. It's the old king that adopts a new persona because he doesn't need Joseph anymore. In the story of Daniel, there's a heartbreaking scene where Daryovish, Darius, after he has effectively been tricked into sending Daniel into the lion's den, is pacing up and down at the top of the pit, wondering whether Daniel is okay because he can't do anything about it because he's effectively been, been, been trumped by his advisors. Um, and I think one of the the things that brings this vulnerability home most, most strongly, certainly to me, is the ending of the story of Joseph. Of all of these characters, it's probably Joseph that rose to the position of greatest influence in Jewish history. He had the highest position with the greatest power in the greatest empire. And yet, at the very end of his life, and it's the last source on the sheet, he gathers his brothers together. And he says, Anochimet, I'm about to die. And I know that God is going to remember you and he's going to take you away from this country to the land which he promised to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. And Jacob made his brothers swear that when God takes you, dig up my bones and take me with you. I don't want to be part of this Egyptian story. At the end of the day, the story, the narrative that I want to be a part of is the story of the children of Israel. I think there's a profoundly Zionist subtext to all of these stories. And, and in a sense, that's why, as much as I find elements of these stories that I can identify with, I think there is a hevdel tahomi, an unbelievable difference between the situation that these fragile, orphan, immigrant, parentless children faced in their societies and the situation of somebody that is being sent abroad by a sovereign state of Israel. When I went to a foreign court, I went armed with an Israeli passport. I have to say that wasn't such a great look when I was given my diplomatic passport, I was looking at it very proudly in the consular division in the foreign ministry and I saw it says ambassador extraordinary and plenipotentiary and I was feeling very proud and then I took another look and I said I don't know how long you've been issuing these passports for but you do know that you've spelt plenipotentiary wrong <laughs> <laughs> and, so, and so, so they said give it back to us we'll, we'll, we'll change it I said no 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 I'd like you to change all the other ones from now on, but I want to keep this one with me so that if ever I get big-headed that I'm an ambassador, I'll remember that I'm representing a country that doesn't know how to spell the word <laughs> plenipotentiary. But, but there is something about being a representative of a sovereign country. There is something about being a representative of a country that is able to give the Jewish people a voice. You know, shortly after we went to London, 
The, um, the Globe Theatre, which some of you may know, the Globe Theatre is a reconstruction of Shakespeare's round theatre on the south bank of the Thames. Uh, the theatre burned down, they've rebuilt it, and they decided to have a festival of all 36 of Shakespeare's plays, inviting a different country to perform each of those plays in its own national language. And so I was interested to discover that Habima, Israel's national theatre company, had been invited to perform The Merchant of Venice. And my heart just sank. Is that the only thing that they can associate with the Jewish state? It's Shylock and so on. And yet Zahava and I went along to see the performance and I have to tell you, it was an extremely emotional experience. Because here we were in a theater that had risen from the ashes. And we were seeing this play performed in a language that had also risen from the ashes. And I couldn't help thinking that this is a play which, for more than 400 years, has been performed about the Jews. And they couldn't do anything about it. And now we have a state and a national theater company that can take ownership of it, can give it its own interpretation, can give it its own voice. And in a sense, it was a very, it was a very moving experience. And, and I think it also came across, and with this I'll finish, it came across when Zahava and I went to present, present our credentials to the queen, the real queen this time, and not somebody just pretending to be. And so in the course of the conversation, uh, Her Majesty asked me, how does it feel to represent, represent your country in the country in which you were born? Um, and it's a good question. I'd guess that she might ask it. So I said that I feel very privileged that I have been able to raise my children in their historic homeland after an exile of 2,000 years. But I'm also well aware that in that arc of 2,000 years, the period of greatest hope and opportunity was found here in the United Kingdom. And I want to express my appreciation by deepening the relations between the countries. And then we went on to talk about other things, and then it was time for us to leave, so we left. And, and when you leave your audience with the Queen, there is a book. And you sign your name. So Zahava and I signed our names, and then we were about to leave when we realized we'd done something wrong, which is that we'd written our names in English. And we realized we should have written our names in Hebrew, because that's the language that has come back to life in the state of Israel. So we asked, can we go back? And of course, they already knew I was a troublemaker with the blessing and everything else. <laughs> so we went back, and we signed our names in Hebrew. And we are standing there, looking at this book in Buckingham Palace, looking at the flags, seeing the Israeli flag flying at the same height and with the same dignity as the Union Jack. And you realize that we truly are living in a time where there is so much light, there is so much honor, there is so much cause to celebrate. We're living in the dreams, beyond the dreams of our grandparents and our greatest grandparents. And it's one of the greatest privileges there is. Thank you very much. So if, uh, if there are a couple of questions, then I'm, I'm quite happy to answer them. If people feel the need to go there, that's also, that's also fine. Yes, please. Just tell me your name. Sorry. Chuck Friedman. Chuck, Chuck. Did you have to give up your British citizenship to become ambassador? So the question was, did I have to give up my British citizenship to become ambassador? And the answer is yes, actually. It was, um, I wasn't asked by the British to do it. I was asked by Israel to do it because they want to make sure that any diplomat that goes abroad will have the full range of privileges and immunities, which you wouldn't have. Uh, but actually, towards the end, at the end of my posting, I asked to get it back. And my last meeting with Theresa May, who at the time was not the prime minister, she was the, the home secretary, I said, and by the way, I have a favor to ask you. I renounced my British citizenship, but I'd like to have it back, and it's at your discretion. She says, is it? She, wasn't, she didn't realize that she had this particular thing. And she said, that would be fine. And actually, so I was back in Israel already, and the British ambassador called me, and he said, would you like to come and 
swear the oath and you know, get your citizenship back and so on. And I said, yes, of course I would. He said, how many people will you be bringing? And I thought, well, it was just me, basically. <laughs> but, but I hadn't expected it, actually, to be a moving event. I just thought it would be a technicality. But I was standing there, and I was taking this oath, and I couldn't help thinking that on one side of my family it was my grandparents. On another side of my family it was my great-grandparents who made this exact same oath. And in a way it was that oath of loyalty in the United Kingdom that saved them from everything else that was going on in Europe at the time. So in the end I did take it seriously. And as Israeli as, as I am, I'm very proud of the fact that I also have a British passport. Thank you for downloading this episode of Pardes Live and Miniseries. For more digital content, please visit elmod.pardes.org. If you liked what you heard today, please give us a five-star review and subscribe to our podcast channels.